You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You'll need to have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 22. We would all affirm on the testimony of Scripture that a man is not saved by his works. We would all have to affirm on the testimony of Scripture that a man is not saved by his works. That is to say that in the process of salvation and in the act of salvation, I am responsible for absolutely nothing that takes place. And by that I mean that I can glory over nothing that has happened to me and nothing that I have done or nothing that was done to me. Because my works, my good works, my acts of service, my meritorious actions do nothing either to save me, to sanctify me, or to secure me for salvation. My works do not contribute to being saved, that is to say, God does not look at my belief or my willingness or my goodness or my good looks or my bad looks or anything else that determines that He would have mercy on me and save me. And there's nothing that I can do that can contribute to His salvation. And I cannot add to His salvation. I cannot perfect that salvation. There is nothing that I can do to to take credit for sanctifying myself since it is God who is at work in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That is His work. So not only is my salvation His work and my works contribute nothing to that, my sanctification is His work and my works contribute nothing to that, although I would not deny that we are responsible to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And the security of my salvation, that is my final perseverance to the end, my final continuance in the faith does not re, is not tied to my works, and my works have nothing to do with that because it is by His power that I am kept for my inheritance. And it is by His power that my inheritance is kept for me. So from beginning to end, my salvation has nothing to do with my works. Nothing that I do contributes to it whatsoever. So I am not saved by works. But I am saved unto good works. Do you notice the difference? And do you know what the difference is? I'm not saved by my works, but I am saved unto good works. These are the two truths that are placed side by side in that marvelous and familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that, the faith, is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I am saved by grace and I am saved for good works that God has prepared for me to do. I am not saved by my works. I am saved unto good works. Paul seemed to understand this. The moment that he was saved, immediately after he was saved, before he even lifted his face up out of the dust on the road to Damascus, with dust on his clothes and dust in his face, he said, What shall I do, Lord? Paul knew that he wasn't saved by his works but he knew he was saved unto good works. He knew that the Lord had not saved him just to get him out of hell. The Lord had not saved him just to get him to stop persecuting Christians. 
The Lord had saved him for service. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Do you know what he says? I was counted faithful and He put me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. God does not save a man just to keep him out of hell. And God does not save a woman just to keep her out of hell. God saves us unto service so that our salvation is not just the end of a life of sin, it is the beginning of a life of service. Our salvation is not just the end of a life of sin, it is the beginning of a life of service. Paul knew that. That's why he said, What shall I do, Lord? Lord, what do you want of me? As soon as he understood who Christ is and what Christ had done, as soon as the Gospel had pierced his heart and he had believed, the very first question that he asks is, Lord, what do you want of me? You name it and I will do it. Paul said to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 6-7, through seven, Urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Titus 2.14 says that Christ Himself gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. The reason He saved you is so that you would turn from your idols to serve the living and the true God. Now I ask you, is that how you view your salvation? Do you think so little of Christ that you think not of serving Him? And do you value so little your salvation and the grace of God that you care not whether you spend yourself for Christ in service? Do you view your salvation just as your ticket out of hell and your fire insurance for heaven? Or do you view your salvation as God turning you from your idols to serve the living and the true God? How do you view it? Three times in the book of Acts, Luke tells us about Paul's conversion. And all three times, Luke tells us about Paul being called to service. You see, in Paul's mind, the two went together. He was not only convicted and brought to faith in Christ, but he was commissioned to serve and to preach Christ. And you could never have one of those without the other. Can you imagine Paul's conversion without him being called to minister or to serve? And can you imagine a calling to service without the conversion? The two go hand in hand, and in Paul's mind, and in Luke's mind, they were the same incident, the same thing. I am saved to serve. It's not just that he was saved, but that he was saved and commissioned to preach and to teach and to serve. In Acts chapter 22, we have a look so far at Paul's conduct before he was saved, that he was a persecutor, a blasphemer, and a violent aggressor, that he set out to destroy the church and to destroy the faith and to imprison and to beat and to kill anybody who called upon the name of Jesus Christ, all those who belonged to the way. And then we looked at the circumstances surrounding his conversion, that as he approached the city of Damascus, he was blinded by that light and forced to his face with all of the men who were traveling with him. And they all saw the light and they all heard a voice, but they didn't see Christ like Paul saw Christ, and they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to them. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And suddenly his world fell apart, began to see the light. We use that phrase, don't we? I saw the light. It mean I had a conversion experience. I saw the truth. That's what Saul did. And then he asked, Lord, what shall I do? Get up and go into the city of Damascus, and it will be told all that has been appointed to you. And he was led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 22, beginning at verse 12. And I want you to see two things about Paul's commission to preach because we have looked at the the, his conduct before his conversion and the circumstances of his conversion. And now I want you to look at his commission after his conversion. And I want you to see, first of all, the instrument that God used to give Paul his commission. Verse 12, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who were living there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul... Receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. A certain Ananias, Paul said. Now, if you compare this passage with Acts chapter 9, the first account of Paul's conversion, you'll notice some differences. In this passage, there is a, there is a lot of details that Paul leaves out. In Acts chapter 9, listen to what Luke says. Now, this is Luke gives us, in, from his third-person perspective, everything that happened to Ananias to prepare him to meet Saul. Paul doesn't mention any of that when he's giving his testimony. So listen to what Luke says about how Ananias was prepared to meet Saul. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. Now that's Acts chapter 9. Do you notice what Paul leaves out of all of that discussion? You'll notice, first of all, that Paul doesn't refer to him as a believer, as a disciple. And that's not because Ananias wasn't. It's simply that Paul is not referring to Ananias in terms of Ananias' Christianity, but you'll notice how Paul describes Ananias. Devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all of the Jews who were in Damascus. Paul doesn't mention anything about Ananias' vision and his interaction and commissioning from Christ to go lay hands on Saul and give Saul his commission. Paul doesn't mention any of that. There's a reason why Paul doesn't mention any of that, and that is because Paul is telling all of this story from his perspective. The first time he saw or heard Ananias was when Ananias came into the house and stood next to him and said, Brother Saul. And so Paul leaves out all of the details that would be considered hearsay, and he's just telling the story from his perspective. And so he leaves out all of the stuff that the Jews would be able to say, well, that's hearsay. You said Ananias said this is what Christ said. Paul's just telling it from his own perspective. Furthermore, he leaves out any reference to Ananias being a Christian because the Jews, if Paul had mentioned that he was a disciple of Christ and a follower of the way, if that's how he had identified Ananias, then the Jews would have immediately dismissed him as an uncredible witness. But Paul doesn't do that. How does he describe him? Look at it. 
He was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all of the Jews at Damascus. You know why that's significant? What were the charges against Paul? What did the Jews say was true of him? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this holy place, the temple. And furthermore, he has defiled this place by bringing a Greek into the temple. Those were the charges against Paul. That he somehow preached against the people, against the law, and against the temple. So when Paul wants to talk about the individual who Christ uses to commission him to preach, he describes him as a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all of the Jews. In other words, the individual that Christ used to commission Paul to service was himself a devout Jew. So all of the Jews would be listening to Paul and they would be understanding him to say, I received my commission from a man who himself was not hostile to the law. doesn't describe him as a believer. describes him as one who was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. And he commissioned Paul to preach. Look what he says next. He was well spoken of by all of the Jews who were there. He came to me and standing near me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now what a sight that must have been. For Ananias to walk into that house, the house of Judas on the street called Straight, and walk through the doors, and here you see the man who you have heard so much about. I mean, his fame has preceded him to Damascus. When Jesus said to Ananias, go down to this place and lay your hands on Saul, he's seen a vision. What did Ananias say? Lord, I've heard from many about this man. I heard about what he did to Stephen. I heard how Philip fled Jerusalem. I heard of all of the harm that he did to your saints in that city and how the saints fled the city of Jerusalem and went out into Samaria and everywhere they could go to get away from the persecution of Saul of Tarsus. And he walks in and he sees this man whom Acts chapter 9 says he hasn't eaten or drank anything for three days. And he is in the house and he is praying. He is obviously disheveled. A man who doesn't eat and doesn't drink for three days, Saul was still reeling from the effects of his conversion and trying to process all of this. And and uh, I doubt if he had slept much. I doubt if he had bathed. I doubt if he had enjoyed any kind of entertainment or comfort or anything. I think he was just absolutely transfixed by his Damascus Road experience. And Ananias walks in, and that is what he sees. This rabbi who is so well-known throughout the entire region, all of the area. And he's praying. And then look what he says. Brother Saul. Now, do you think that those two words would have ever rolled off the lips of Ananias? Do you think Ananias could have, in his wildest dreams, ever thought that he would call Saul of Tarsus brother? Do you think Ananias could have ever seen that coming? Do you think he would have ever imagined, or even in his wildest expectations, thought, that this persecutor of the church, this one who tried to destroy the faith, would ever, ever, under any circumstances or under any conditions, ever come to a point of trusting Christ and that he would be a brother to Ananias. Do you think he ever thought he would ever hear himself saying those words? Brother Saul. (laughs) Man, that would have been hard to roll off of my tongue to say that. I've heard how much harm this man did to your saints. And now he is your brother in Christ. And not just your brother in Christ, by the way, but an apostle to the Gentiles. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Acts chapter 9 says that the scales fell from his eyes. Paul doesn't mention that in his testimony, but that's what happened. Paul does say in verse 14 that at 
that at that verse 13, at that very time, I looked up and I saw him. Now, Paul's healing is not just a detail that is thrown in there. There's, there's a significant reason why Paul mentions that healing and why Luke mentions the healing in Acts chapter 9. There's a reason why Paul was struck blind and then Paul was healed by Ananias. There's actually two reasons. The first is an, a sort of an apologetic reason. That is to say, a, a defense of the faith reason. When Paul mentions that he was struck blind by that light and then that he was healed by Ananias in connection with his commissioning, the Jews would be understanding him to be giving evidence as to who Christ was. Because the Jews understood that the Messiah would heal the eyes of the blind and heal the ears of the deaf. That the deaf would hear and that the blind would see. So when Paul says, I was, I lost my sight and then I was healed by this one who appeared to me on the road to Damascus through Ananias, Paul is giving evidence that Christ is the Messiah because Isaiah 35 verse 5 says that the eyes of the blind will be opened and they understood this is what the Messiah is going to do. Furthermore, it authenticates, it authenticates Paul's call to ministry. He saw Christ, he was blinded by it, and in connection with his commissioning to preach and his being commissioned as an apostle, he was healed of his blindness and he was given sight again and that authenticated his call to ministry. And Paul is not the only one who was there to experience that. Ananias was as well, and Ananias could witness to that. He received his sight. Now, the Jew, Paul, I should say, Paul has already identified this one who appeared to him as God, since he talked about the bright light, this light unapproachable, this light that appeared to him. He saw that on the road to Damascus, and the one who was the source of this light, who dwelt in this light, who was the essence of this light, could only be one individual, one person, and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers. And then Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? And they would be wanting to hear, Who is this one who appeared to Paul? He can only be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is it? And Paul says it was Jesus of Nazareth. So he has already attributed to him deity in the ears of these Jews, and now he attributes to Christ his messianic credentials by saying that he healed me of my blindness. And he authenticated his call to ministry. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Verse 15. Or sorry, verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. The God of our fathers. Very Jewish term, isn't it? Not Jesus Christ, but the God of our fathers. And who would Saul understand that to be? And who would the Jews understand that to be? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers, the God of our nation, the God of the Jews. The God of our fathers has appointed you to three things. First, He has appointed you to know His will. Second, to see the righteous and holy one. And third, to hear an utterance from His mouth. First, to, see, to know His will. Now, did Saul think he was doing God's will when he was stopped on Damascus Road? He thought he was. He thought he was doing God's service by killing the followers of Christ. He thought he was protecting the nation. Protecting the law, protecting Moses, protecting the temple, protecting their culture and the traditions and everything Jewish. He thought he was doing his responsibility and his duty. He was zealous for the God of his fathers. But now, Ananias says, the Lord has appointed you to know his will. You see, Saul came to the point where he understood, I wasn't doing God's will. His will is wrapped up in Christ. And to the Jew, to know God's will is to do God's will. And only a fool would presume to know God's will and not do God's will. 
So when Paul says and asserts that he's doing God's will in his ministry, he is implying that they are going against God's will by opposing him. See how tactful and, and gracious that is? He has been appointed by the God of our fathers to know his will. Second, to see the righteous and holy one. The righteous one is a term or a title that was used of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 11, Messianic chapter, says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, Peter charged the Jews of his day, saying, You disowned the holy and the righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. In Stephen's defense, before Saul of Tarsus, before Paul, in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen said, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. A messianic title. You have been appointed to know his will. You have been appointed to see the Messiah, the righteous one, who bore the sins of this people. And third, you have been appointed to hear an utterance from his mouth. And that's what Saul did on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. Get up and go into the city of Damascus and it will be told everything that you have been appointed to do. He heard an utterance from his mouth. Now he knows God's will. Now he has seen the righteous one. And by the way, that is what blinded him. That is what he saw in the light. He didn't just see the light like the other men who were with him. He saw Christ. Paul makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ our Lord? He had. He had seen Christ our Lord on the road to Damascus. That was the last thing he saw. He saw Christ and then he saw blackness. And he was blinded. And the next thing he saw was the face of this devout Jew who has given him his commission to preach. And he saw nothing else. Led by the hand into Damascus and he stayed there for three days, not eating, not drinking, until in walks this man who says, this is what you have been called to do. It has been appointed to you. You have been appointed by the God of our fathers to hear that utterance, to see the righteous one, and to know his will. Now the answer to Paul's question, Lord, what shall I do, doesn't come until verse 15. And that's where Ananias says, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. This is why I've saved you. You're going to be my witness. I want you to tell people what you have seen, and I want you to tell people what you have heard. Testify to me. Friends, do you realize that's why you've been saved? Do you realize that's one of the reasons you've been saved? To solemnly proclaim the gospel of the grace of God? To testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you have been saved to be a witness? Now, you haven't seen the risen Christ, and you haven't been blinded, and you haven't heard an utterance from His mouth. These things were appointed to Paul, but you have experienced grace, and you do know truth, and you have experienced forgiveness of sins, and you have come into a personal relationship with Christ. And how quickly we forget that one of the reasons we have been saved is that so we could be a witness to all men of what we have seen, of what we have heard, and what God has done for us. To testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. Have you even thought about that this week? Have you wasted this week and lost every opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of salvation and let the whole week slip by? And will you do it again this week? Friends, He has saved you to service. He has saved you. He has appointed you. He has chosen you. And He has pulled you out that you might be His witness. And that you might share the truth of the gospel with every 
creature on the face of the earth, testifying solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And look at verse 16. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Verse 16 reads a little odd in the English. It's a little bit clearer in the Greek. If you read verse 16, it seems to be saying, or Ananias seems to be saying, that washing away sins is connected with baptism. Do you see that? Do not delay. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. It seems to be saying that the baptism leads to the washing away of sins. And consequently, those who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation point to this verse and say, well, here Ananias says to Paul, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, as if the washing away of the sins is connected to the baptism. The problem is, Grammatically, in the Greek, the washing away of sins is connected to the calling on the name of the Lord. Literally, we might translate it, arise and be baptized, having washed away your sins, having called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, it is the calling on the name of the Lord that is the foundation upon which the two commands, get up and be baptized, having your sins washed away, is built. It is those who call upon the name of the Lord who are saved, not those who are baptized. You can baptize every human being on the face of this earth. That doesn't make them saved. You can baptize every human being on the face of this earth ten times. That doesn't make them saved. What saves is calling on the name of the Lord. And that's what Ananias is saying to Paul. It's not baptism that saves or washes away sins. Friends, it is calling on the name of the Lord that saves and washes away sins. And it is that reason that we are baptized. The very next thing that Paul is commanded to do is get up. And be baptized. Identify yourself with Christ. It is His death, His burial, and His resurrection that washes away our sins. It is our identification with Him and calling upon His name that those things that are true of Him become true of us and we have our position in Christ and our sins are taken away because we've called upon the name of the Lord. So Saul, get up and be baptized. Because Saul had called on the name of the Lord and been saved. Now, friends, to this point, the Apostle Paul has implied that he is submissive to God and therefore the Jews who are persecuting him are not. That he is being obedient to divine revelation and therefore the Jews who are persecuting him are not. That he himself is commissioned by God and knowing his will and obeying the truth and that the Jews are not. He has identified Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Righteous One, the Holy One, whom these very people had killed only 25 years earlier. And he has identified Jesus Christ as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob who dwells in light unapproachable and has called him to ministry and to mission with a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a witness. So by implication, anybody who persecutes Saul or opposes Saul is opposing all of that. And you would think this would make them furious at him. You would think that by this point with all of that implied and all of that stated, having heard that this Jesus, whom Paul says is the Messiah and God, has commissioned him with his message, you would think that that would infuriate him, but it doesn't. There's something coming up in the verses we'll look at next week that really makes him mad. It's not that Christ is God. It's not that He's Messiah. There's something else that they just cannot tolerate from Him. Now having looked at all these verses, I want to go back and I want to point something out to you. It's something that we tend to miss because we read passages like this all the time and we never notice that these things are here until we really sit back and look at them and sort of pull the passage apart. I want you to look first of all at verse 14 
And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him of him for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Luke has a habit in the book of Acts, and here is his habit. Luke's habit in the book of Acts, and this is at least the fifth time that Luke has done this, is he presents two truths right next to each other that seem to us to be absolutely irreconcilable. The first truth is the sovereignty of God in salvation. The God of our fathers has appointed you to see the righteous one, to know his will, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. The other truth is that it was Saul who called on the name of the Lord for salvation. God has appointed you. The word appointed literally means to take into one's hand, to put into one's hand, to put before oneself for a purpose. The God of our fathers has chosen you, Saul. He has brought you out of the mass of humanity. He has placed you in front of Himself. He has taken you into His hand. That, I think, is a lovely picture of salvation. That's what He says. The God of our fathers has appointed you. Now, listen, the concept to the Jews that God would actually appoint His servants, that wasn't foreign to them. You may wrestle with that and say, that's not fair, that's not just. But the Jews didn't struggle with that at all. Moses didn't choose God, God chose Moses. Abraham didn't choose God, God chose Abraham. Isaac didn't choose God, God chose Isaac. Jacob did not choose God, God chose Jacob. And God chose David, and He chose Samuel, and He chose David, and He chose the prophets. It was God who did the choosing. The Jews didn't struggle with that at all. So when Paul says that the God of our fathers has appointed me, or when Saul is told that, the Jews don't have any problem with that. Of course God is sovereign. Of course God chooses His servants. Chooses His people. It's God who's sovereign in that way. Yet that doesn't deny the fact that it was Saul who called on the name of the Lord, does it? You see how Luke puts those two concepts in the same passage right next to each other? And you notice that he does not attempt to reconcile them. He does not attempt to explain how it can be possible that Saul of Tarsus was appointed by God, and yet he called on the name of the Lord. This last week at camp, I got in a discussion with a group of kids that we were teaching a a workshop on on evangelism with. And one of the kids says, but Romans 10.13 says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because I was talking to them about election and the sovereignty of God and salvation. And the kid said, it says in the Romans 10.13 that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you do with that? I said, I don't deny that. It is God who appoints. It is we who call upon the name of the Lord and we are saved. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said, it is the predetermined plan of God that Christ should be crucified. But you Jews are responsible for it. And he laid the blame at their door. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was praying. This happened to Christ by the predetermined plan of God. Yet it was Herod and Pilate and all of those Jews and Romans who masterminded the whole thing and did it. God is sovereign and and they acted. God chose that it would be done. God appointed that it would be done. He predestined that it be done. And it was done. But God is not responsible for it. They're responsible for it. Acts chapter 13, to the Jews, Paul said, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I'm turning to the Gentiles, and guess what? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul said, you're responsible for rejecting it, and all those who were appointed accept it. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they go hand in hand. It was the Lord who opened Lydia's heart, that's divine sovereignty, to respond to the things spoken by Paul, that's human responsibility. You have been appointed, and you have called on the name of the Lord. Friends, you're responsible to call on the name of the Lord. That is the only way anybody can be saved. But I, for one, stand before God thankful and grateful that He appointed me 
to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Because had he not done that, I would have never called out to him, and neither would you. And we can thank him and praise him for that grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for that grace that was extended to us in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, from all of eternity. That grace was given. Thank you that you called us out of darkness into light. Thank you that you drew us to yourself. And thank you that your glory is evident in all of salvation. Thank you for saving us to service, for turning us from our wicked ways to serve the living and the true God, for granting us repentance, giving us faith to believe, and drawing us to yourself. Thank you that you have drawn us near to you. We have you to praise and you to glory in, and we rejoice in you for this great and marvelous salvation. Thank you, Lord, for appointing us to call upon your name. We thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.